Welcome to Protecting Your Assets, the show about protecting people, property, and most importantly, protecting your ass. I'm your host, Lucky Luciano, and I'd like you to join me for a fast-paced and often fiery discussion about security issues with my co-host, Brian the Angry Man Claimant. Whether we're piercing the veil of security, talking your duty of care, or raving about the latest technology, we'll share our thoughts on the issues, the trends that are impacting security today and into the future. So grab a coffee and join us for our latest podcast, and don't forget to like and follow us on our sponsor's website, brianclayman.com. And now let's talk about protecting your assets. Hello, folks, and welcome to Protecting Your Assets. I'm your host, Lucky Luciano. So joining with me, as always, is Brian, the Angry Man Clayman. Excited to bring you our second interview. Uh, a well-known expert, now retired from the RCMP, but certainly knows everything that needs to be known about fraud. And his name is John Meacher. We've known John for well, since G20, I think. So that's going on over 10 years already that long. Wow. John is a 32-year veteran with the RCMP, where he was one of the team leaders of their Financial Crime Investigations uh, Unit. As a financial crimes investigator, his primary functions revolved around, but weren't limited to certainly focusing on just investment scams, counterfeit currencies, frauds against government, cross-border fraud, anti-money laundering, capital market fraud, sensitive sector corruption investigations, and mass marketing fraud. You know, the famous Nigerian scams, the 419 scams and things like that, which I'm sure we're going to get into. His secondary duties included law enforcement financial crime training for the RCMP and, of course, other Ontario-based agencies. He has experience and training with fraud prevention, doing media interviews, public service announcements, public presentations, and source development. He was also active in undercover operations. As I said, he uh, now did you head up the G8, G20 Joint Intelligence Group, uh, John, or are you just part of the, the team there? I, I was part of the team, but I was the team leader. So the Joint Intelligence Group was broken in into several different categories. The, the team that I belonged to was the liaison management team. All so right. liaison management team is basically the connection between the jig and the outside world. And my responsibility, I was a team leader for engaging government agencies that were non-intelligence, non-law enforcement, and private sector such as what where you folks worked at the time. Thank you for clarifying that. And just to finish off your your, your bio here, uh, you were also a counterterrorism investigator team leader. In this capacity, your responsibilities revolved around terrorized, uh, terrorism financing, terror financing intelligence, and counterterrorism. You performed a wide, range, wide variety of, of policing duties as an investigator, senior investigator, which included but weren't limited to uniform duties, obviously. You've done work at the airport. You've done the criminal investigations and a number of projects which uh, relate to customs, excise taxes, and commercial crimes. So really a, a, a wealth of experience that uh, that we're speaking to today. Welcome, John, and we're happy to have you on, on the podcast. I'm going to turn it over to Brian to welcome you as well and speak to what's keeping him up at night and get us started into the into the conversation. Brian? Hey, John. Welcome to our uh, podcast today. It's great to have you. And as Luke said, uh, we've known John, I think, since G20, and he... Uh, has become a good friend, someone we look up to and learned a lot from, and a great ambassador of the RCMP. What keeps me up at night? Well, I had a New Year's resolution, and the resolution was that I'm going to stop thinking about President Doofus. And I've tried really, really hard not to think about Trump. But the events of, you know, I thought 
after the election in November, it's over. And like most every other president of my lifetime, that when they were in that final month or two, they were outside the news cycle, they had their goodbye tours, and life was simple. But not our President Donald J. Trump. He just continues to amaze. It amazes me with, I think, we're almost a week left right now. The world is sitting back, holding his breath, wondering what button is he going to press? What what stone is he going to uh, uh, turn over? Uh, it is just amazing to me what's happening south of the border. And because we've got John here today and Luke, for some reason, you're in a real talkative <laughs> mood. I'm going to keep it short. I just am really concerned with what we see happening in the States, and it's going to get more dramatic in the days to come. Great TV, I might add. I really don't think Canada is necessarily that far away. I think a lot of the whack nuts that are surfacing in the States exist here in Canada as well. I think it's a rally call for extremists all over the Western world to start raising their heads. And I think that uh, we're just starting uh, the journey down a, a very challenging time from the law enforcement, security, and intelligence point of view. So going to be great TV on CNN and Fox this winter while we're locked in the houses, but busy, no doubt, for people like John, former intelligence guy, people doing the intelligence gig. That's what's sort of keeping me up and a bit concerned. Busy winter. It's going to be a busy weekend. Apparently, they're all going to be demonstrating this Friday, this Saturday and Sunday. So, and then yeah. we got the inauguration next week. I'm going to turn the spotlight for me on on our own president, Doofus, Prime Minister Idiot, uh, because what uh, you know, especially lately with uh, with the just, guy. Just, what's I did just watch it though. We have a member here who yes. used to work for the federal government. He swore an allegiance to the Queen and the Prime Minister, yeah. and I've heard it from the grapevine that he's a Trudeau. He runs a Trudeau oh. fan club, so just be careful. <laughs> well, well, he no longer works for them. So with that said, my issue uh, or my concern, what I want to put on the table is the fact that, you know, we got two Michaels still in prison over there under, you know, disgusting uh, conditions. You can't imagine what they're dealing with on a day-to-day basis for the last couple of years. And here we are giving the red carpet treatment to Mang and her family so that they can be together. Uh, you know, in spite of COVID, they're allowed to come over on a plane and, and visit the, 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 the wife and, and the kids. And I think it's the disgusting display of whatever, I don't know what you call it anymore. He's enamored with the Chinese. I don't know what it is. To me, it just doesn't look positive for Canadian relations going forward with uh, with our five eyes, certainly. John, I'll well, turn it over to you. <laughs> okay. Well, just to be clear, I am not a fan of any uh, prime minister in this country right now. And just to be clear, I, I'm not a fan I, of the outgoing president either. Uh, and I would say that when I think about things that really keep me awake at night, uh, it bothers me immensely ju- just what Luke said uh, about the silliness that, that's surrounding the two Michaels. And when I saw last night what was in the news, I, I commented on this in LinkedIn. How are the families of the two Michaels feeling today? Yeah. And that still blows me away. And then it speaks to the greater issue. And here's where fraud comes into play. And it's kind of interesting. Mark Garneau, back around, I, I think it was like 2012 thereabouts, it, during one of the debates, because he, he was vying for the uh, leadership position with the Liberal Party at one point. And he asked Trudeau, and I'm paraphrasing because I, I, I don't remember it exactly, but what exactly is it on your resume that qualifies you to be prime minister? At the end of the day, 
as we found out, the cruel irony, nothing. Yeah. <laughs> the the o- the only reason that he was selected by the Liberal Party, recruited by the Liberal Party, had nothing to do with his capabilities or anything he had on his resume. It was his name. And as we all know, just because you have a name of a famous person doesn't mean you have that same qualities of where that name originally acquired its notoriety. So what we are looking at now, you know, I, I think about fraud all the time. What we are experiencing in Canada, we're experiencing fraud at the highest levels. We're having, I, and I'm not saying that Justin Trudeau is committing any fraud per se, but he's impersonating a prime minister because there's very little real about him. Yeah. And, and I have a lot of liberal friends who will take me to task or they stop taking me to task. And they'll say, why do you do that? I said, well, well, here's why. The guy has demonstrated contempt against First Nations people repeatedly. Mm-hmm. He has demonstrated contempt against veterans. He's demonstrated contempt against the taxpayer. And he's con- demonstrated contempt against uh, members of parliament who actually have integrity. So when you have that reoccurring theme where, you know, in my mind, when I think of Justin Trudeau, one word describes him is contempt for many. I guess that's three words. <laughs> well, you know, and it's an interesting point both Luke and John have made because on both sides of the border, we have leaders when we need leaders more than ever before because of all that's happening in the world. And it's an absence of leadership. It, it, it's fake news. There, No one is showing real leadership when we need it the most. And the thing that's most amazing to me is that on both sides of the border, the leaders get away with it. Trump's approval rating has taken a hit, but it's still in the tens and tens of millions. And the liberals keep getting elected. And the polls are not, you know, I would have thought they'd be a lot more negative towards the actions of uh, our prime minister. They're not. So it's it's interesting, and, and it's going to be interesting to see how it evolves. I, I like the use of the word impersonating the prime minister, which actually crystallizes what I've always, what I've seen in him, because every time he's on the news, he seems to be acting. He doesn't seem to convey a genuine empathy for people. The dramatic pauses, the dramatic words, the hyphenation, to me, it's just a, a stage. It's a show for him. And that, to me, it's, it's scary, but impersonation hits the spot, right? right? That's the title we should be using. Yeah. By the way, a, you know, a, a, oh, sorry, John, go ahead. I, I was just going to say, it, it's kind of funny. When I was in the RCMP, we, we would have political views, but we'd keep them to ourselves or, or to small conversations with small groups. We, we never had the opportunity uh, to express those opinions publicly. The one thing, going back then, there was a lot of members, it, it was politically diverse in, in any office I ever worked in. Uh, supporters of conservative party, supporters of uh, liberal, supporters of NDP, supporters of green. Anybody who I'm still talking with, I don't know anybody, any ex-copper or current serving copper that will say, yeah, I'm a bona fide supporter of the federal liberals. Yeah, no, it's terrible. And I think that speaks to one thing. Cops have the ability, ex-cops have the ability to quickly cut through the BS. And recognize just what you are seeing yourself, uh, Luke. So, so with that, John, I, I I want to get into the conversation. And you talked about the fact that this is sort of the highest uh, highest level of fraud that you you see being committed. Can we get more of a definition around 
what you mean by fraud? Because most people will probably think about checks being cashed or people calling you on the phone pretending to be somebody they're not. So what specifically are we talking about when we talk about fraud in this in this framework that we're going to be talking about? Sure today? thing. The two examples you you mentioned uh, examples of fraud, but if I had to put it together in one sentence, basically it's when somebody uses trickery or tricks, you know, using layman's terms, uh, to basically acquire unfair gain of either a thing or monetary gain uh, or from a victim. And one of the ways that I used to explain when I used to do presentations, I used to have like a happy face and a sad face on, on a slide. And I, I'd explain, okay, everybody understands what a theft but not everybody understands what a fraud is. So a fraud, not only is it that trickery that's utilized to essentially steal from somebody, and, and that's not a, a legal definition, but essentially a fraud is a different type of theft. But there's several differences. One, it always requires a certain amount of assistance from the victim to actually facilitate the crime. Whereas a theft... You know, somebody can steal your car. You know, sure enough, somebody might say, well, you left it outside. No, that's not the same thing. Uh, There's an actual interaction between the victim and the perpetrator to uh, carry out a fraud. The other thing that's distinctly different from a fraud, going back to the happy face, sad face, when a theft occurs, the moment that you realize that your wallet is missing, you'll have a sad face. But often when a person is defrauded at the moment the fraud takes place often the victim will be happy because they have the impression that oh they just got something right uh you know it might be an investment scam or if it's a cra scam after they sent off the money there's a big sigh of relief because they just got rid of the problem that was created by the cra and then with fraud unlike theft the realization that the crime occurred will often happen sometime down the road and that's a common theme with fraud, and it's one of the biggest challenges with fraud because there's that time left. I, I, I'm I, starting I, to I, see a, a look of panic come over Brian's face. Brian, I, 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 <laughs> the analogy you just gave of the happy face and the sad face, I want to ask you, John, as an expert in fraud, so the guy I sent my bank account information and SIN number to yesterday from Nigeria that had $100 million that was offering me $50 million if I could help him. I was very happy yesterday, but I was starting to become sad today. Have I been defrauded? Yeah, there, there's a good chance, Brian. Uh, you know, the, the one thing that is, is victims of fraud can become very embarrassed. So we'll have a discussion afterwards, Brian. Uh, but, but just mentioning that, the sharing of personal information, there's a number of frauds out there that will pursue that avenue, you know, with the hope of identity theft, which then sometime down the road might lead to identity fraud. But there's a whole host of scams that includes identity theft a- as a primary driver. And that can be everything from emails where they're simply phishing for your personal information in hopes that they'll be able to acquire enough to execute a identity theft against you. And then at the same time, 
I'll often refer to in a lot of my postings Indian call center scams. Indian call center scams include everything from a CRA scam, immigration scams, bank inspector scams, tech assistant scams, and the SIN scam, social insurance number scam. And one of the confusing things for a lot of people, when they get a call about the social insurance assistance number scam, people are, are left dumbfounded. Like, what just happened? Because you'll have this person calling up, representing themselves as either law enforcement or representative of the government, and... All they're asking is personal information. And then the conversation ends. And when I, the first time I heard about that, I'm saying, oh my God, there is a massive buildup of personal information taking place at these call centers. Sometimes there's money lost at the time, but more, the majority of the calls, uh, based on my understanding, there's no request for money, only personal information. And the big problem is, there's hundreds, if not thousands, of victims out there that have never realized that they were targeted in an identity theft attempt or success because they won't find out until maybe a year or two down the road when all of a sudden they find out that there's a house in their name or I should say a mortgage in their name. John, you had mentioned India. Is India becoming the powerhouse? It used to be Nigeria and uh, parts of East Africa. But I've been noticing even personally getting unsolicited emails and phone calls from people with Indian or South Asian type accents. If uh, Is India emerging as a uh, power or is it just uh, uh, coincidental? Or, and I always want to make this clear. When I talk about Indian-based frauds or Nigerian-based frauds, I'm talking about fraudsters. I'm not talking about the entire population. Certainly. I, I always yeah. like to include that. Yeah. Mass marketing fraud which is basically utilizing the mass marketing techniques, whether it is emails, phone calls, text messages, classified ads, uh, newspaper listings, Kijiji ads, all those things is a mass marketing technique that fraudsters have embraced. But the first group of fraudsters to actually key in on exploiting that were actually Nigerian fraudsters. And this goes back several decades, where one of the primary methods of getting their message out there was through faxes and letters. Nigerian fraudsters have since expanded their base, diversified, if you will. These are the folks that invented white money, black money scam. They invented the, the print scam. They invented the uh, romance scam. And they have layers of other scams that go everything from inheritance scams to investment scams. Whereas Indian call center scams, they targeted in, in a, I would say, a niche area of fraud where they are out to basically impersonate government officials for the whole purpose of executing frauds. And then the history of Indian call center scams actually goes back to around about 2011. And most scams, if you want to know what scams are going to be coming to Canada, you look at what scams are currently new and active in the States. So in 2011, there was this thing that burst onto the scene called the IRS scam. And uh, I'll, I'll be honest, I, I didn't hear of it until like 2015. But what happened, there was the IRS scam and then all these other scams that were playing out in, in the United States. And then early 2014, it migrated northward into Canada. And like right off the bat, there was a, all this fraudulent activity and there was like two frauds that were like really active one was the cra scam and the other one was 
the immigration scam. So it's basically the same scam, they just target different people. And then what, while I mention that, I'm going to tell you a story about the CRA immigration scam and at the same time show a, a glimpse into the fraudster's mindset. A fraudster will do whatever they need to to make a little bit of money. There's greed, but you know a lot of people can be greedy, but they're not necessarily committing crimes. Every ounce of greed that these Indian fraudsters have, they don't care who they hurt or what kind of damage they do. So going back to, it would have been September 2015. So at that time, I was actually leading a team out of Milton that was focusing on the CRA scam. And uh, with that, like we were getting inundated with information, hearing about cases, vulnerable members of the population being exploited. And one of the ones that really stood out to me and, and still resonates with me as to how you could do something like this. So there's this guy. He's a refugee. He moved to Canada. I won't say where. And he's happy he's here. He's in Canada with his wife and his two daughters. He came from a war-torn country, a police state, and he, he's enjoying life. And he, he was a very proud individual. He had enough money and the wherewithal to actually set up a business shortly after he came to Canada. You know, it sounds like a success story. Fantastic. So he, his daughters went off to school. His wife went to work wherever she was working. And then the phone rang. And who was it? The CRA, the fake CRA. So he had been in Canada six months of the time. And the conversation went something like this. Fake CRA, who I'll just call the CRA guy. The CRA guy uh, throws some questions at him. All the questions are geared towards finding out who he is, how long he's lived there, how much he has in his bank account, so on and so forth. So now that he has all that information, now he's going in for the kill. And he says, okay, so based on our records, you actually owe the government of Canada $21,000. And the guy had the wherewithal at that point to say, $21,000 for what? You didn't pay your taxes last year. And the guy said, I've all, I haven't been in Canada for a full year. There must be a mistake. Oh, just one moment. Oh, I'm sorry. The file I received should actually be an immigration file. One moment. I'll transfer you. Mm -hmm. So there was a click, and then he's transferred over to a, an immigration agent, who then goes through the same process and says, yes, actually, when we look at what transpired, when you arrived at the airport in Toronto, you're actually supposed to pay for this document, this fee, and so on. And guess what? It magically added up to $21,000. On day one, they held him on the phone for 12 hours, basically taking him emotionally hostage. And he's being told, which is a reoccurring, a reoccurring theme with many frauds, that he wasn't to tell anybody. And not did they just say, don't tell anybody. But they said, if you don't pay us, I think this was on a Tuesday, if you don't pay us by Thursday, you, your wife, and your two daughters will be thrown in jail and will be sent back to your home country. So can you imagine the terror going through this guy's mind at that moment? So his family comes home that night. He's completely, he's losing it, but he doesn't say anything because he knows that the following day, they have a phone date at nine o'clock. They're going to call back. And then the following day for 10 hours, they had him on the phone 
and basically they're and they're giving him direction going from one Western Union to another MoneyGram to another MoneyGram. And to the credit of several of the outlets, as soon as he came in, they said, look, this is a scam. Fraudsters are still on the phone telling him, don't you listen to them. Remember what's going to happen if we don't get the money. Do you want to see your daughters in jail? Do you want to see you and your family go back to where you came from? So he just played along. At the end of the day, he emptied his bank account. That was his life savings. Wow. Gone. And the only reason why we found out is sometime down the road, uh, his daughter was asking for something that he couldn't afford. And then he broke down and said, you know, the government took all the money. Oh and then, God. and the story was revealed. So that thing I mentioned earlier where there's always that delay in the reveal of fraud, that was very pronounced. That theme played out with other victims as well. And just so you know, I, I know that a lot of your interest uh, revolves around business owners and, and so forth. All these scams that I'm going to be talking about have hit business owners yeah. as well. It, but John, and all, John, can I just ask you a question? Because to me, and it's a terrible uh, story you tell. And I'm sure it happens countless times across the country. But the ones I've received, and actually I received two this morning, which is hilarious. One was IRS and one was another guy looking for credit cards. And now I actually play along with them. I don't even hang up yeah. on the phone anymore. I Me actually well. play along with them. I put them on speakerphone, waste their time to get a little bit of payback. But my question is, to me, it's so obviously poorly played. Or maybe it's just because I'm more aware than most people that, that I'm able to do that now. Do they target – is that part of the problem? People just aren't educated enough? Do they target specific segments of the economy or the the society that, that are more prone to believing that kind of stuff? Or are there varying levels of professionalism on their end? I love your question because here's the thing. A lot of fraud investigators will be quick to agree that there's three primary victims of fraud, and that is seniors, newcomers to the country, intellectually challenged. But fraud investigators who've been around much longer will also agree there's a fourth group, and that fourth group is basically just with anybody else given the right set of circumstances. Right. So specific to the CRA scam, because you mentioned education, there was one person who the set of circumstances went something like this. I, I'm just trying to think of how can, I can articulate. And every time I, I tell these stories, I, I'm trying to give you the full scope of the story without saying enough to possibly embarrassing, making it recognizable right. to the victim. So basically, you had this guy, we'll say on a Sunday night, his wife announces to him, Oh, by the way, I'm leaving you. The door slams. He's left at home uh, with the two kids and the dog. So he's blindsided. So the following morning, he's getting ready to go to work. He's a teacher. Uh, and, you know, I think most people agree teachers have the benefit of a higher uh, education. education yeah. and, and with that, there's a certain level, I, I think, of critical thinking that goes along with being a teacher. And, and there was nothing about this guy that suggested that he was intellectually challenged in any way, but it was a set of circumstances. So number one, there he is Monday morning. His kids are sick. They're throwing up. He has to find somebody who can watch his kids. The door opens. The dog goes running out the door. Oh, my God. And then the phone rings. And who is it? The CRA. So in a relatively short conversation, 
the fake CRA agent tells him that he owes $2,500. So in that moment of time, he's already been blindsided yeah. by the news that he received the night before. Sick kids, has to get somebody to watch them. He has to go find the dog. And now the CRA goes calls. So yeah. he's thinking in his mind, out of all these things, because he's thinking, there is a certain level of critical thinking going on at this point. He's saying, okay, which one of these things can I make go away right now? $2,500. I'll make that happen. So he made that happen, but you know what? As soon as he sent the money, he realized. He said, yeah. yeah. And, and that's been a reoccurring theme. And the other thing, just to show how vicious these Indian fraudsters are, and it's like one story that leads to another. But again, showing the, the fraudsters' mindset, they will get the money no matter what. I'd say it would have been about maybe February 2016. We were dealing with a victim who had lost, a, a, and this is a victim who would have fallen under the intellectually challenged category. Uh, but this victim was a hardworking person their entire life. I'm not even saying it's to him or her. I'll, I'll just call the person Purple. Purple uh, worked hard doing manual labor, but managed to save like $100,000 in RSPs. So Purple, when Purple got the first call, the person making the call was crafty enough to find out how much she had in savings. She lost the whole savings mm -hmm. to the CRA scammer. So that happened fall of 2015, jump forward to uh, February 2016, we are now tracking her down because we want to get more information from her. And she says, wow, I can't believe your, your timing because I, I got good news. I just got a call from David Carter from the IRS. And he told me that I'll be able to get my money back. One of the people on my team was trying to talk sense into her saying, no, this is a fraud refund fraud, uh, which is a common fraud, mm -hmm. uh, where, where the fraudsters will come back for more, saying, hey, if you pay a percentage, we will get all your money back. So this guy representing the IRS, David Carter, called up and was having that conversation. So my colleague didn't have any success getting through to her. So I said, look, I'll give it a try. So I had a conversation with her. And this is the other reoccurring theme with a lot of frauds. Once a victim falls under the uh, hypnotic trance of the fraudster, yeah. it's so challenging to try to knock them out of there. So I, I said, okay, look, can you at least do this? I said, can you please give him my desk number and say that the only way that you're going to give him money, he has to talk to me first. Right. So guess what? He called. That blew me away because I offered that approach to other victims or potential victims. Never heard from them again. Did he know <laughs> you were the police? Yes. yes. Oh, my oh, God. A financial crime. So the guy calls me right off the bat. He's annoyed with me. And he's telling me that how dare that I should interfere with IRS investigations. I can be charged with obstruction of <laughs> uh, wow. an IRS investigation. I, I said, okay, David Carter. I've never heard of David Carter that had an accent like you before. <laughs> I, I'm supposed that's what happened. But David Carter of the IRS 
I am John Meacher of the RCMP. Do you know what the RCMP is? It doesn't matter. I said, well, the RCMP is the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. I knew that. So the guy was quick. He, he didn't know, but he was quick enough to respond. And I said, okay, so what's this thing that you're offering a refund? I don't have to tell you anything, uh, but uh, you're really trying my patience. So you better get back to purple and make sure that this goes through. Otherwise, there will be consequences. Consequences such as what? Are you threatening me? And I said, let's back up a couple steps. I said, you keep going on about the IRS. You do know in Canada, the CRA is the revenue agency. He says, well, we are working cross-border. Uh, we, 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 we work jointly on files. I said, no, I, I'm going to call BS on that as well. It's rather unfortunate that you have success with some people, but you're not having any success with me. So I, I figured at this point, my focus then was, I'm not going to convince him for anything, but maybe I can actually work towards actually making him a source. But there has to be a certain amount of cooperation and, and a mindset, and it wasn't going anywhere. So after spending 45 minutes on the phone with him, like I, I'm also wasting his time, and I got his email address, uh, which was uh, David Carter at Google.com. <laughs> of course. Uh, so in, in the end, I, I, I said, look, I, I wish I could say it was nice talking to you, but talking to you is like talking with a drunken psychopath about. So I called up Purple and I said, Purple, okay, here's what transpired. And when I told, and it's funny what will resonate with people. And, and I wish I had the insight to say that drunken psychopath would have been the key to opening that door. But when I called up Purple and I said, I, I told her the, the conversation and, and I, I told her how it ended. She says, John, it makes me feel so much better to know that somebody talked that way to these people. I, 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 I could never do that. And she was like thankful. And, and at that point, it, it rung home. It, and it, it just goes on with a, John, a long, very sad list of, of stories. John, I have to ask you, because you're right. It, you know, on the surface, a lot of people think of fraud and they think it's sort of uh, rich people getting defrauded on a real estate deal. And they don't realize the real human trauma that's associated with a lot of this. I mean, the story you gave about that immigrant, how they took everything and, and, and you know, it was really, really sad. But I, I guess I have a two part question. First one is, what is the likelihood of anyone ever getting arrested and justice being served? I think it's pretty low. And I guess the second one is, what is the nexus for the RCMP to get involved? Because none of these seem to me anyways on the source to be major federal type uh, types of crimes. Yet you guys had a very active portfolio of investigations. Can you explain that? Num number one, arrests do take place periodically in India, but I've yet to see of any proof that there's any tangible punishments being handed out. But at the same time, I'd be living in a glass house if I said, shame on India. Okay, Canada, unfortunately, is home to many, many fraudsters, and they reside in Canada because they know our justice system is soft on fraudsters. We were looking at, when we were investigating the CRA scam, several municipality, municipal police agencies across Canada and a heavy concentration in Toronto were arresting CRA fraudsters, but who we used to call runners. So these people would go over to Western Union MoneyGram, pick up money from a victim, and then wired off or have it muled over to India. 
And, and most of the people involved in that, I say most, not necessarily all, but most of them were expats. Mm-hmm. And, and they're residing in Canada and uh, municipal agencies arrested them. But once they are taken to court, it, unless there was like extenuating circumstances, which I, I think was only in one case, most of them got a slap in the hand. They might be found guilty, but it'd be a conditional sentence or a suspended sentence, maybe a couple hours community service, something like that. Maybe one of the more tangible outcomes, I believe that in a couple cases, they actually were able to get money back to the victims, which on our investigation back in 2015-16, we were actually able to get money back as well. One of the things that people should do as soon as they realize that they've been defrauded, no matter what kind of fraud it is, the moment that you realize that you've been defrauded, contact your financial institution or whoever was the facilitator of that transaction. So if it was a wire transfer, contact your bank. If it's going through a an Apple gift card, contact Apple Security because there is a window of opportunity. It's lit, literally hours. But if the call is made, Apple can actually shut down the card before the money is transferred. Mm-hmm. And, and one happy story we were able to report, there was this nanny uh, living somewhere in Canada who had saved up 2500 bucks to, you know, do what, send home to her family. And, and she sent off $2,500 worth of uh, Apple gift cards. And just so happened, things lined up just right. And we were able to engage Apple security, and they were able to shut down the transaction. That's one, one aspect. But the aspect to other arrests taking place, there, there's another, since I left the RCMP, there'd been uh, a second investigation out of my old office. They've had several arrests here in Canada, but again, it looks like most of the individuals arrested, I say most of the individuals based on what the media reports have been, are low-hanging fruit. I don't see any tangible outcome to the courts. I might be surprised. Maybe they'll get a judge who will listen to all these stories and say, you know what, we have to make an example, even though it was just a money mule, uh, but I'm not holding my breath. But on the flip side of that, one of the great opportunities that I had while working financial crime was working with U.S. authorities. And when I was a team leader for Project OCAST, which was the CRA scam that we were investigating, we had the opportunity to work with several uh, U.S. Uh, federal agencies, the FBI, TIGDA, uh, the IRS, and the Secret Service. One of the things that lined up is we had identified victims that were sending money through Western Union and MoneyGram going south of the border. At the same time, it just so happened a line where I went to a meeting down in Washington about the CRA scam. And at that time, I, I was doing as much networking as possible. And I came across an FBI agent down in Florida, and we started comparing notes. And I said, we're having a lot of money going down to Florida. And she says, isn't that funny? We're seeing a lot of money coming up from Canada down to Florida. And they had already identified the money mules. And uh, they're actively looking at uh, arresting these money mules. So it was like one of these beautiful moments where everything came together because they were looking to get the losses at a million dollars, because when you get to a million dollars in the States, in certain jurisdictions, in Florida anyway, 
you're looking at potentially 20 years in jail for fraud. Whereas in Canada, I've asked other uh, fraud investigators, what's the lengthiest sentence you've ever personally experienced? And, and, and not like a one-off that you can look up online, but and this one came from a, a, a TPS uh, officer that I used to work with, and he said six years. But in Canada, they don't get six years. Yeah. They'll serve two-thirds at of best, course. and then off they go. And if you did a million dollars worth of fraud, or a couple million dollars worth of fraud, and you happen to serve a couple years in jail, you know, it's almost the cost of doing business. It is. But jumping back to our experience dealing with the, uh, this fraud JFO down in Florida, and we were able to then track down all the victims that we had identified, which was a major undertaking. And then guess what? They reached that magical number. Mm -hmm. And then what happens? The other thing that happens in the American justice system, which takes fraud serious, when you have the threat of possibly 20 years hanging over your head, guess what? There's a good chance that you're going to plea on it. Yeah. And guess what? They did plea on it. And I think most of the perpetrators that they identified are looking at or have since received 10 plus year sentences. So, John, no, the... Canada, I'm sorry, I was just going to say, though, with the RCMP involvement, is it because they're impersonating CRA officials, which are federal uh, uh, crown officials, and that's your nexus in? Or do you just investigate, like a romance scam? If it came to your attention, would you investigate it, or would you say go to local police? So th there's two questions. Regarding the CRA scam, when the scam originally broke out, just about every police agency that had fraud investigators were investigating it. But but they hit several brick walls in that they're only able to identify runners. You're not going to make this scam go away by just simply identifying runners. You, you got to go bigger. So one of the pillars of Project OCAST was first off identify, prove that it's actually Indian based. We did that. And I can say that we did that because initially my chain of command did not want me saying that this was Indian based without ha having proof. So guess mm -hmm. what? We're going to get proof, and we got proof. Getting back to your question. Well, I was just saying that the federal police were involved, and uh, what was the nexus that got you involved to it versus okay. the local police? So the big thing was, I, I believe that this fraud, well, it got the attention of the federal government because they were impersonating the CRA mm -hmm. and uh, immigration people. That falls under a federal heading. And everybody saw this as being, a, you know, like, where are you going to start? But to me, a real victim is a victim that has a beating heart and a soul. Yeah. Somebody whose life has just been ruined. These are the people who I wanted to investigate on behalf of. Uh, and then going back to what will actually comes back, and I wasn't going to mention this, but since, since you opened the door, one of the things that I was really hoping for to actually make this scam go away it is in order for this scam to go away or any other scam that is operating in a foreign country which has almost a certain amount of insulation yep. that they're able to operate uh, beyond the, the reach of the law, we have to do this different. We had our, our liaison officer in, in India who for a period of time was actually pushing, successfully pushing the local police to take down call centers but then that ended. So I was always an advocate of the next time 
our prime minister goes over to India, whoever that prime minister might be, have the prime minister engage the Indian prime minister, Prime Minister Moody, and have a conversation with him, a 30-second conversation, say, hey, we've got a problem. Our most vulnerable are being targeted by fraudsters in India. What can we do to make that work? Because then it would open the door to, okay, it's not just police that will be involved over in India. It's going to be politicians. And why? Because they want to make sure that they clean up their act. And the funny thing is, I, I still follow these scams. And any time that there is an arrest that takes place in India, I'm especially interested. I'll look at the posting on Indian websites and I'll go look through the comment sections. If you think people in Canada get angry about these scams, <laughs> good law-abiding Indians are even more angry. Mm -hmm. Like, they're talking about lynching these people. Mm -hmm. But you know what? I have no problem with the substantial sentences. But, you know, I'll have to say lynching them might be going <laughs> too far. <laughs> this is, John, uh, this is definitely interesting uh, perspective. And, and there's a lot of victims obviously that that are suffering from this i wanted to touch because i want to be cognizant of our time as well yes. but i also wanted to touch on what is their end game because you haven't talked about that you know why are they doing this where does the money go do we know and what are the implications of that let's go back a couple steps number one these scams uh, on a yearly basis uh bring in revenue in the millions my memory i'll be honest isn't what it used to be it's okay, uh, I deal with I Brian, he has the same issue. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Brian. Uh, so, at one point, uh, the losses due to the CRA scam, immigration scam, was in the ballpark, identified ballpark of possibly $16 million. That's just Canada, right? Like, if we talk global, they're much larger. That's right, great. Okay. That's just Canada. And, and keep in mind that the losses in the States are 10 times that amount. Right. The thing is, what we've seen is only 5% of the victim's report. Right. So you're looking at that number becoming incredibly larger than what's identified. That's one comment. The other comment, and this stat I do remember because it was the only time I was able to find stats for this, to put money into some sort of tangible example. When you look at, I shouldn't say an average amount, but a reoccurring amount that we would hear about would be $2,500. That would be a reoccurring amount, but it wouldn't be out of the ordinary. At least when we were investigating, we would see like somebody would be north of $75,000. Uh, and in that, it'd be like a business owner sometimes. It'd be somebody who was one guy, he had dementia. Mm -hmm. And uh, the investigators who looked into it were able to confirm that he lost at least 135000 but weren't able to nail it down exactly due to the fact that his mental capacity was such that he was not able to articulate what had happened. Long story short, things can be done, but this scam will never go away based on just arrests. Whether the arrests occurred here or over in India, there has to be much more tangible activities take place in India. And then that comes to what I was saying about the prime minister. Lo and behold, Justin Trudeau went to India a couple of years ago. Yeah, the famous and, dancing and, uh, yes. incident. And, and as, you, as you might recall, he did not have time with the Prime Minister of India until he was leaving. And, and this hour has 22 minutes. Uh, joke that the only reason 
he showed up at the airport to see him office to make sure he got onto the plane. <laughs> well, the, the guy, you know, if there's no other reason that I have no time or respect for Justin Trudeau is he has failed every single victim of every single Indian call center scam that has played out since. Because when he was there, he should have had a heart-to-heart talk with Prime Minister Modi about the impact that this scam has had on Canadians. And the other thing that I, I, I failed to mention is the impact on, on victims. So there's multiple layers of impact. And I'm sorry if I'm going all over the place, but I'm kind of hoping it makes sense in the end. This is why I, I, I like using PowerPoints. Not only does it give like a nice little shiny object for the audience to watch, but it also keeps me on track. So Guidance, I apologize. Yeah. The victims and the impact. One of the obvious impacts is the financial loss. But with many victims of fraud, no matter who you are, there's a certain amount of embarrassment. And that's the number one reason why we only see 5% of people reporting. There's a lot of people out there who have lost a lot and said, you know what, I'm going to eat that. I'm never going to tell anybody. There's When embarrassment goes to the extreme, it will push victims towards actually considering suicide or actually attempting or committing suicide. And on Project OCAST, which was a CRA scam in 2016, this is a rather sad statistic. And it's a difficult thing to nail down. In Ontario alone, through other police agencies, we were able to identify two occurrences where two victims actually attempted to commit suicide. It wasn't just thinking about it. They attempted to commit suicide because they fell for the CRA scam. Mm -hmm. And why is that? Because it most likely left them absolutely broke and devastated. And how do you go to your family and tell them, like, we have no financial future? It's the same for every other scam out there. Whether it's an investment scam, which is what, when you talk about scams that target business people, investment scam is a reoccurring theme. And one particular investment scam, and it was an investment scam that I actually started when I was at the, the, the fraud JFO downtown Toronto. And it was targeting um, a, a group of individuals operating out of Toronto, but the lion's share of their victims were in the States. So again, I had one of those things it just kind of lined up down in Phoenix at the time. Initially, it started off as a financial whodunit for my counterpart. In Canada, it was like a financial frustration because I, I'm having all this information, FinTrack information, and, and I, other leads that's suggesting that this guy is heavily involved in fraud, but I don't have any victims. I, I can't even do money laundering because I have to be able to identify a crime in order to tie it to money laundering. And the guy had himself pretty well insulated. They had all these shell companies set up. And I was just starting to like chip away at them. But then once I started talking with my U.S. counterpart, he had all these victims and had what was playing out. He identified the scam. And then when we started talking, I'm saying, this sounds like it's, it's coming to a head here. And basically this guy orchestrated a scam that didn't appear like a scam. I, I, I'll get to the end first. The guy was found guilty, and the presiding judge, who who is a very experienced judge, said, this is the most sophisticated scam this particular judge ever heard of. And the scam went something like this. It started off with an email, a very well-crafted 
grammar-proofed email that basically put forth an opportunity, not an investment, just simply an opportunity, essentially a distributorship for silicone ger germanium wafers, which is a, a something used in high-tech industries everywhere. The fraudsters were very patient, so they'd send off the email, and every single email, and we know this to be the case, having had the benefit of the investigation, every single email went out to either entrepreneurs or business owners, and business owners of various different backgrounds. There were 12 victims that were business owners slash entrepreneurs, and there was like one group of victims who happened to be a group of cops oh, down in California. <laughs> so, you know, like you like to think that cops or ex-cops are insulated against fraud? Yeah. No. There's other examples where cops and ex-cops have fallen for scams before. What happened next, and this is important for anybody who might be listening to this, people, if they think they are vaccinated against a scam, there's new scams coming down the pipe. The whole attempt, they're trying to break through your armor. So these guys, the scam, first the email providing some sort of uh, a distributorship opportunity, not asking for any money. They're just simply looking for people in strategic places to take on that role of distributing their product. And the payout it was going to be enormous because essentially they were going to have a monopoly. And then they'd move slowly. They said, look, and people would say, well, what do I invest? Oh, you don't have to invest anything. And one of the victims was a venture capitalist. And, and on average, there was 13 million lost or there was 1 million lost per person or group, group of people on average. But the venture capitalist, he, he was the biggest loser. He lost in excess of $5 million. Damn. So a venture capitalist, if somebody knows investments, a venture capitalist should, especially yeah. with a guy with, with his particular resume. It, it went from the initial email uh, saying, uh, this is an opportunity. Out of the 10,000 emails that he sent out, get a couple response yeah. then they they get into a little bit deeper so then it would go from an email to saying okay we want to make this a little bit more official we want to send you a letter so getting a letter from an address that's a little bit more of a, a convincing uh, effort and and then it would say uh okay we we have our investors we're good to go and then there'd be an email that would follow up unfortunately uh, we're going to have to put this on the back burner. And this is very, very bold of a fraudster to do this. We're put, we're going to have to put it on the back burner. A and the person is saying, why? Well, we lost one of our investors, but don't worry. We think that we've got another one coming online in Italy. The, the person who received the initial email, one of the future victims, is thinking, okay, so if I'm able to make a lot of money just as a distributor, how much more could I make if I was an investor? So they say, you know what, we usually just deal with people who are like really experienced with this. And then, of course, the person's appetite is now wet. And they come back and they say, oh, come on, come on, come on. I, I, I've already got the money. How much do you need? And then the discussion will be, well, how much do you have? Yeah. And at which point the deal is done. And then a couple months later, they say, okay, I'm sorry, but we just lost our another investor. But this time it's different. There was a death in the family, and they're just pulling back from all transactions for the time period. But you know what? We should be good to go in another six months. So now, you know, 
in for an ounce, in for a pound. Each one of those 13 victims followed suit and, and put forth more money. Yeah. And then these fraudsters used a lot of tradecraft. Tradecraft, same techniques that uh, both spies and undercover cover operators will use to convince their target that they're real. Uh, so they used alter egos. They used uh, uh, internet protocols that ensured uh, that their location would not be identified. Yeah. They used burner phones. They used high-level money laundering techniques that would always take the money out of the country to another country, to another country, to another country, then back to Canada. It was a nightmare to, to dissect all that, but we did in the end. And then in the end, the only thing that was good about all this is the bad guy, a Canadian, is now ended up serving uh, 12 and a half years down in Whoa. a uh, federal penitentiary. Oh, or in the States, that's uh, what. <laughs> yeah, th that, that's the good side. But along the way, th th there was devastation. Like, yeah. a lot of the victims, uh, they're, they're devastated. Because yeah. it's not like they had that much money lying around to invest. Some of them Life savings the for some of the these people, for sure. Yeah. Um, I'm just cognizant of the time because we do, we're over our time limit. So we're going to move towards closing. I know you can talk about it all day because you can tell you're very passionate about it, still very passionate about it, even though you're supposed to be retired, John. I remind you of that. <laughs> it is, it is a, a topic that's always in the news and people are always getting these calls. And, and uh, while most of us understand what they are and, and are able to, to defend ourselves from them, so to speak. Uh, obviously, there's a lot of people who can't for whatever reason, for some of the reasons that we've talked about, that you've talked about on this podcast. But with that, again, cognizant of time, I'm going to move towards uh, closing this podcast off and maybe we can have a part two <laughs> in the future because there's certainly no no lack of, of topic, uh, subject matter material on uh, when it comes to frauds. So, Brian, I'm going to turn it over to you. You've been quiet, which is amazing. It's rare. So I'm, I'm enjoying that. <laughs> but, you know, closing comments. Well, yeah, it's only because I, uh, I'm a big fan of John's, and yeah. uh, I really uh, have learned a lot from what he was saying. And what really struck me is that I've always thought mistakenly it's a fat cat crime, and people that get victimized are just stupid and get over it type thing. And literally, some of the stories you told almost brought a tear to my eye, and especially because justice seems so far away for these uh, nice, decent innocent people that have been so brutalized and um uh, you really uh, got me thinking uh, you really educated me thank you john any Pleasure. closing comments you want to offer and summarize yeah. your your thing? I, i'm happy that you picked up on my passion because i i still have passion <laughs> i i have passion for preventing fraud because it, it, it's it's not as i often say fr a fraud is never just a fraud it, sure there are some people they can be defrauded and they can quickly regroup, but that's not always the case. One of the questions I'll often ask when I'm doing a public presentation, I'll ask, why should you be interested in the fraud? And my answer is twofold. One, everybody has vulnerable people in their circle of friends or their family. Or you have a best friend or a neighbor who just, you know, is a refugee. And one of the problems with these impersonation scams where, where they're impersonating different government officials they come from countries where they're taught basically to be terrified of government yeah, officials sure. so what, what what the hallmark of fraud prevention revolves around the ability to get the fraud prevention message out there so fraud in the mind of a lot of people is boring and i'll be honest before i got into fraud i thought fraud was boring 
but I had an inspector when I was in London and Paris that talked me into it. And I, I said, well, actually, this, the, this type of fraud that I'm talking about, I, I found this very exciting and interesting. So it's important to get the message out there, even if you do it like one person at a time, if and when we do get around to having like dinner conversations, or if you are talking to an elderly uh, relative, have the conversation, hey, do you know about the CRA scam? Do you know if somebody should call you? If anybody ever calls you, and maybe this is the best question to ask, if anybody ever calls you asking for personal information or money, please call me first. No matter what they say, if they demand that this is secret, all the more reason to call you first. So that, that's yeah. one thing. And the same thing, to, to a, a wider degree, sometimes people need their, their counsel from friends, their wise friends. And say to your friends, you know, like, bring it up in conversation, you know, there's these scams out there that can pierce through the knowledge base of an investment, uh, a venture capitalist. Yes, venture capitalist, yep. So if a venture capitalist can fall for a scam, yep. where does that put your average amateur investor? So th th there's awareness that, that needs to be built. And one of the things specific to the corporate environment is there should always be some sort of fraud training built in. Just as you get ready for every other eventuality and disaster out there, there should be a certain amount of fraud training. I, and I, I apologize that, that I went over because I did want to talk about uh, different scams like phishing scams mm -hmm. uh, and ransomware scams, which target commercial entities continuously. And there's a different set of protocols dealing with those. I, I'm so happy to talk to you guys, see you guys. And I also apologize that I, I've been so long-winded on certain topics. Oh, it's, uh, we certainly appreciate the conversation. And like I said, you clearly are still passionate about it. And it's great to see that there are people out there who genuinely want to do something about to your point, something that's viewed as victimless on many levels, right? Because it's just money yeah. and you can be replaced. And that's not fair to the victims. Um, and unfortunately, we live in a country that takes it very lightly. And that's not uh, that's not exactly fair to anybody. Hopefully one day that'll change. We're not going to change it, but <laughs> at least at least we're, we're on the right, the right team uh, looking at the right options going forward. So with that, like I say, I mean, I'm genuine as well. I think I think it's an underplayed risk to to our people, to our society. And that maybe we do uh, consider having a, having you back in in future. Talk about those other scams that you referenced because everyone's aware of them. Everyone's been victimized by them. And I think there'll be value uh, in talking about those in particular scams uh, a little more in detail. So with that, I'm going to say goodbye to our listeners. A reminder to uh, like us on our page, brianclayman.com. John is retired, but I'm sure he's, he's happy to respond to your emails. He's available on LinkedIn. Uh, you can track him down yourself. Um, always a, a great conversationist, as, as you can see, and uh, certainly interested in helping people where you can. Brian? Yeah, just, John, thanks a lot. You are one of the good guys, and <laughs> I really, really do appreciate your passion. Thanks for joining us today, John. Thank you for having me, gentlemen. You guys take care. You as well. Bye. Everyone be safe. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That concludes this podcast. We hope you enjoyed listening and will join us in a couple of weeks for our latest episode. Please remember to like and follow us on our sponsor's webpage, brianclayman.com, where you can leave us your comments and suggest topics you'd like to hear about in future episodes. Until next time, thanks for listening and don't forget to protect your assets.